Hello, everyone. I'm Chinzia Emmerich. And I'm Ann Sullivan. And for our podcast this week, we are going to discuss social media and its effect on the social interactions of human beings and the subsequent ramifications for humans of this online social interaction. Anne, I would love to start out with a discussion about context collapse, which Boyd speaks of extensively in Chapter 1 of her book, Identity, Why Do Teens Seem Strange Online?, which is one of our readings this week. Well, my first thought after reading Boyd's work is that we all wear certain masks, metaphorically, in certain situations in life, and most of us can probably say that it is in our closest personal relationships that we don't wear masks. But in the work environment, in a school environment, in a religious environment, there are certain social norms or mores that we abide by, and we moderate our behavior based on these norms. And when these worlds collide, as Dana Boyd points out in her book, It's Complicated, The Social Lives of Network Teens, this pre- precipitates what she terms a context collapse, in which we are then forced to grapple simultaneously with otherwise unrelated social contexts that are rooted in different norms and seemingly demand different social responses. A good example would be meeting your new boss unexpectedly in a social occasion out at a bar, or someone who is a work colleague but not a friend wants to friend you on Facebook. Boyd speaks of the difficult task many teens have nowadays of navigating social media online and the many challenges of self-representation in a networked era. She also points out that these context collapses happen much more frequently in networked publics. Teens are trying to toe the line between their online identities and their real-life identities. They are also managing various different social media sites with different social contexts and having to grapple with family, friends, teachers, and imagined audiences. Context collapse occurs in real life as well as online, but in many ways it is much easier to navigate in real life. Online, there is little control over social situations. As Boyd aptly points out in Chapter 1, because social media often brings together multiple social contexts, Teens struggle to effectively manage social norms. Some expect their friends and family to understand and respect different social contexts and to know when something is not meant for them. And yet there are always people who fail to recognize when content isn't meant for them, even though it's publicly accessible. Boyd also adds that the ability to easily switch contexts assumes an ephemeral social situation. This cannot be taken for granted in digital environments. Chinzia, do you have a personal situation that you can recount regarding context collapse? Have you faced context collapse with regard to being a parent online and in the social media environment? What about context collapse as regards to being a teacher? Yes, absolutely. With a Facebook account and two Instagram accounts, I have encountered context collapse. For instance, my husband and I recently celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary, so we decided to get matching tattoos. Well, we did, and at the time, it seemed like a good idea to post it on Facebook. Most of my friends thought it was awesome. However, some responses were of disappointment. Those comments hurt. That post was not for them. I was tempted to defriend those people. How dare they judge me? Yet, I did post it, so I put myself out there, but I am not sorry for posting that experience because when I look back at, look back at it and view it, it makes me happy. I am a parent, a teacher, and an all-around good person, and I would never intentionally post anything offensive or hurtful. By the way, the tattoo we got is of our wedding anniversary date, written in Roman numerals on our forearms, the arms we hold hands with. 
I'm not sure all of my Facebook friends realized that, and I wonder if there would have been negative comments if they knew. Anne, do you have a personal experience with context collapse? Well, when I first signed up on LinkedIn, it was because I was looking for a new job and someone at work recommended that I try it. And I didn't have a Facebook account, so networking in that way was impossible for me. And I didn't want to start a Facebook account at that point to look for work. So I signed up for LinkedIn. I experienced context collapse in this online environment when friends and family started wanting to link in with me. I wasn't sure if this was the right platform for personal messages, but since I didn't have a Facebook account, they wanted to utilize the LinkedIn platform to communicate. But since I regarded this LinkedIn account as a work and job search account, it felt very strange talking to friends and family through it. And I also was concerned about sending a message to the wrong person on this platform because I was linked in with former bosses and people I was networking with for job opportunities. I also got high school friends wanting to connect on LinkedIn as well with me. And I did accept all those invitations, but it really started to tell me that I needed a Facebook account. Chinzia, what do you think about the fact that everyone is essentially recorded on social media channels? Do you think that fact changes a teenager's behavior online? Or do you think most teens do not worry about this permanence in their online dealings? What about adults? Do you think adults think twice about the fact that there is a record of everything you post online? The fact that everything is recorded on social media channels should make all people worry of what they post. I have two teens. My son is 18 and my daughter is 17. They are on Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. I would hope my teens would think twice before posting a post. They are aware of the fact that everything is recorded. I believe my husband and I, along with their school, instilled in them the dangers of posting anything without thinking twice. They know it will be out there forever, available to whomever and whenever. As Boyd points out, social media introduces additional challenges, particularly because of the persistent and searchable nature of most of these technical systems. Tweets and status updates aren't just accessible to the audience who happens to be following the thread as it unfolds. They quickly become archived traces, accessible to viewers at a later time. These traces can be searched and are easily reposted and spread. Overall, my teens post very little and thus so far are innocent and age-appropriate. Their behavior and choices of what they post are for a young audience, their friends. I pray they remain that way. In the back of their minds, they know I'm watching, as well as the entire world. Anne, what, do you, what did you think about what Boyd said regarding the intended audience and actual audience online and how that impacts a teen's choices and behavior online? Well, Boyd speaks of the fact that the intended audience matters, regardless of the actual audience. Boyd states that the ability to understand how context, audience, and identity intersect is one of the challenges people face in learning how to navigate social media. And Boyd speaks to the fact that teens often ignore the possible audience and imagine only the audience they wish to reach. This is very much like public speakers do and focus only on a specific subset of potential readers or viewers. For teens, the imagined audience for them defines the social context and many teens utilize privacy settings on their Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram account. But this does not always guarantee they will know who their audience is. Some social media sites offer streams of content, and teens will imagine their audience to be the exact same people they are following. But just because you are following someone else does not mean that they are following you. 
And as Boyd notes, as a result, regardless of how they use privacy settings, teens must grapple with who can see their profile, who actually does see it, and how those who do see it will interpret it. And Boyd also speaks of this difference in the online versus real-life environment for teens. What was your take on her assessment? Well, as I briefly noted before when discussing context collapse, collapsing contexts do occur in real life as well for teens, but in many ways it is much easier for them to navigate in real life. As Boyd points out, for example, in a real-life situation, if someone is approaching a group of teens, the teens can see the person approaching and become quiet. But online, there is no way to know if someone is approaching and seeing your posts. And due to there being a digital record of exchanges on social media, anyone can view content at a much later date. Teens often fail to account for many possible viewers of their images and posts. As Boyd points out, the ability to easily switch context assumes an ephemeral social situation. This cannot be taken for granted in digital environments. Because social media often brings together multiple social contexts, Teens struggle to effectively manage social norms. Some expect their friends and family to understand and respect different social contexts and to know when something is not meant for them. And yet there are always people who fail to recognize when content isn't meant for them, even though it's publicly accessible. And this brings me to something else that I was thinking of regarding our interactions in the online environment. The online environment for us as human beings is an unnatural one. Unnatural in the sense that online, on social media, media, for example, primitive social cues are not involved. We can't read human body language, facial expressions, tone of voice, all the things we humans rely on for reading other people in social situations. These things are not present in social media. We've tried to replace these body language cues to an extent by adding emojis, but this does not even come close to the experience of reading someone while communicating in real life. Even the telephone has been around for a while, but at least with the phone you can read someone's tone of voice, intonation, expression, and the audio channel has evolved since primitive man to read behavior in addition to the visual cues. But with written text in the social media environment and no other behavioral cues, we are really at a great social disadvantage. We tend to miss a lot of what is meant, misconstrue what is meant, and cause problems in our relationships due to this inability to sometimes grasp someone's true meaning. And all of this is what teens online are dealing with, along with all the other normal social challenges that teens face. And Anne, text messaging is another prime example of how meaning can be misconstrued without actually hearing someone's voice or seeing their behavior while communicating. How many of us have completely misconstrued a comment or conversation with text messaging that ended up causing a fight or breakup of a relationship? This was all too common in the early days of text messaging and still occurs today. Human beings did not evolve to communicate in these manners, so it does end up sometimes causing problems. It's really good you brought up about text messaging. I've had some unpleasant experiences when I sent a text message and someone misconstrued what I said. So I completely agree that there are parallels to what goes on in the social media and other online environments. Because again, those primitive social cues are not there, and so it's much more easy to misunderstand what someone meant by their text. Which brings us nicely to the Ronson reading, which I found so true and pertinent for what is happening in social media nowadays, and in the mainstream media as well. But it has parallels for what can be misconstrued with text messages as well. 
Twitter messages, for example, are much like text messages in that we most of the time send bursts of thought, quick responses, or words of emotion through these channels. On Twitter, we share things, we post things we agree with, disagree with, we comment a lot. But Ronson writes about how social media sites like Twitter have more and more become public shaming venues. He recounts the tale of Justine Sacco, who sent a joke by Twitter that, although worded quite poorly for this type of joke, was not meant in a racist manner, as Justine herself maintained. In fact, Justine cited that the joke was meant to highlight white privilege, but ended up sounding, to many, like a racist comment about AIDS and Africa. But for those who did not get her joke and took it quite literally, it became viral and she was publicly shamed online by the world, essentially. And it was brutal what happened to Justine, but it is a wake-up call to teens and adults online alike in their online activity that we need to be extra cautious with what we joke about, share, post, because things can get misconstrued in the online environment. And when this does happen, it is far more exaggerated, a shaming than in a public setting because of the enormity of the audience online. And because of the anonymity provided online for those who do the shaming, and the last report I read online is that there are about 68 million Twitter users in America, and it is projected that in 2019, Twitter will have 275 million users worldwide. The numbers are staggering. As Ronson writes, with social media, we've created a stage for constant artificial high drama. Every day, a new person emerges as a magnificent hero or a sickening villain. It's all very sweeping and not the way we actually are as people. And with the online anonymity of those that shame others online, it is all too easy to just join the group that is shaming some, someone else. People seem to get caught up in the hysterical shaming of others, as if getting a high out of the event. And as Ronson points out, whatever that, whatever that pleasurable rush that overwhelms us is, group madness or something else Nobody wants to ruin it by facing the fact that it comes with a cost. I also liked when Ronson likened it to Mayo's China or Hitler's Germany, because shaming to this mass degree is like nothing we have seen since these horrible historic acts of shaming. As Ronson said about online mass shaming, it destroys souls, brutalizing everyone, the onlookers included, dehumanizing them as much as the person being shamed. And it was this fact that Ronson brought out that was most interesting to me. The people that are shamed are not the only ones that suffer. The act of shaming in this type of online mass shaming, which would be referred to as stigmatizing shaming, negatively affect, affects all involved, from the onlookers, the perpetrators, and those that are shamed. It is akin to bullying, and like with the Justine Sacco situation, meaning is derived from what was tweeted by the, those that first sounded the shaming alarm, and distributed the retweeted original message to millions, and many follow the lead of those individuals, not really critically evaluating the original tweet and the possible other interpretations of meaning for themselves. So it takes on a life of its own, it accelerates and explodes online, and like propaganda for the masses, becomes the truth to the countless individuals that shame the original author. And in this mass shaming environment, it is impossible for the original author to resurrect their reputation. Jinzia, I wanted to discuss the France uh, 24 news episode highlighting China's social credit score, which was very interesting but quite alarming. 
The fact that the Chinese government is monitoring people to this degree is quite disturbing. They are using surveillance to monitor people and publicly shame them to manipulate the population's behavior. It is in 30 cities in China right now, but will be rolled out in all of the country in 2020. Chinzia, do you see parallels with the social credit score system in China and what happens today on social media? Yes, I definitely see parallels to what happens on social media, like China's social credit score. People friend and like each other's posts on Facebook. And this may not be a score per se, but in some ways, how many friends you have becomes a kind of score. For instance, on my Facebook account, I have 342 friends. Facebook used to display this number of friends on your profile page. Funny, they no longer do that. On my art Instagram account, I have 140 followers. I know account users who have over a thousand followers. Again, the amount of likes, friends, and followers are very much like a score. Chinzia, the Black Mirror episode Nosedive reminded me so much of China's social credit score experiment and also of our social interactions on social media. And I think that a future like this in some ways is inevitable. It's actually already happening to a great degree. In Nosedive, the score rating people gave each other definitely had similarities to Facebook, the likes on Facebook, as well as the number of friends one has on Facebook and the fact that you can hide your profile areas from people and unfriend people. And in real life, even throughout history, we unconsciously give each other a rating in a certain way, right? And this is truly where racism, sexism, and classism have their basis. All are based on these both conscious and subconscious biases we have, and we do make an assessment when we interact with both people we know and people we don't know. We judge people to various degrees, even though most of us feel ashamed to admit that fact, but we judge people based on the way they talk, the way they dress, the career they have, how much money they have, how intelligent or well-read we feel they are. These judgments are going on in human brains all the time. Nosedive just brought this to light and put a number one through five, and a digital system to it with eye implants and connected that system to getting a mortgage and being able to get into a luxury condo community. But that's essentially happening in our society today to everyone. It's not just in a system that is as evident, but it may be that evident someday. I really do believe the day is coming. But to sum it up, it's always been there and unfortunately will always be there. And in a digital environment, this goes on and there is a record of it like in Nosedive and like in social media today. So it takes on a form that is much more like a social credit score. And nowadays, potential employers are checking people's Facebooks and other social media accounts in their decision whether to hire them. And I'm certain the banks do the same. So it is all developing much like we are seeing in Nosedive into a world where your social standing is recorded and evaluated, evaluated, not just by your friends and family and certain invisible people seeing your profile, but in reality, by the world. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Check back with us next time, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We both hope you enjoyed it.